2014, Stephen Goldsmith, Daniel Paul Professor of the Practice of Government and Director of the Innovations in Government Program at the Harvard Kennedy School, and Susan Crawford, John A. Riley Visiting Professor in Intellectual Property at Harvard Law School and Co-Director of Harvard's Berkman Center, presented a seminar at the Ash Center on their new book titled, The Responsive City, Engaging Communities Through Data Smart Governance. Bill Oates, Chief Information Officer for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, provided a response. The seminar was moderated by Tony Sage, Director of the Ash Center. This event was part of the Challenges to Democracy Public Dialogue Series, celebrating the 10th anniversary of the Ash Center. Okay, thank you everybody uh, for coming this afternoon. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Steve and uh, Susan for giving this opportunity uh, to discuss uh, their new book. I seem to be the only one of the four who actually has brought a copy with me, but I guess they can uh, remember what they've written uh, in the book. Um, but it does serve as a good guide around questions of data and leadership and how that can be used to empower both communities and city governments to improve uh, civic life. As you may know, it's uh, through a number of case studies, Boston, New York, Chicago, Philadelphia, and they've used those to weave stories together about how cities have embraced the tools uh, to reshape the manner in which citizens can interact uh, with their government. Um, one thing that struck me was interesting when, when reading it, uh, or reinforced something that I thought, not knowing anything much about American urban government, but in terms of running training programs for people from Asia, how similar many of the problems are that are being confronted, and that a lot of the challenges when you get to the level of local government about how do you ensure better quality of services for citizens uh, are rather similar. There were a few things that struck me. Uh, one sentence was, uh, government must get out of its own way, which I thought was striking. And then I read that structures that produced progressive government in 1890 ensure regressive results in 2014. And it talks about especially risk-averse lawyers. I presume they were talking about universities, but I think they were actually talking uh, about cities. But the vertical structures limiting horizontal flows, I think, could e equally uh, be applied uh, to uh, whether universities are archaic institutions long past their sell-by date. Um, as you see, it focuses a lot on questions of data smart. I suppose one of my questions related to that is, do we also have the challenge of data dumb? If we are really producing now so much uh, information, is there the fear that it can tip over the other side to rather than getting smart solutions, we get even more overloaded uh, governments and citizens making it difficult to make decisions? Anyway, uh, Steve, as you know, uh, directs the Ash Center's Innovations in American Government Program. He oversees the center's Data Smart City Solutions Project. Uh, Susan has been associated with the uh, Ash Center and been at the forefront of innovation and government issues, uh, serving as special assistant to President Obama for science, technology, and innovation policy, currently up at the law school. And then I was uh, interested when reading that we have someone here who looks like a younger Tip O'Neill. 
with boyish enthusiasm, <laughs> as you are described in the book, Bill Oates, <laughs> who is the Chief Information Officer for the Commonwealth uh, of Massachusetts. So I think this would be a very interesting discussion. Uh, both uh, Steve and Susan will start us off with some introductory remarks. Bill will then make some comments. And then we'd like to open it up and then to keep your rapt attention until we get to 5.30, we will have a reception uh, at the close uh, of the session today. So, Steve. I'm just going to stand because I can't see everybody's face. Uh, and then uh, make a few brief comments. I think is this thing on now? Yes. Um, thanks for the uh, introduction. Let me, let me uh, generally introduce the subject and... Since Tony said you get to have a reception when we're finished, we'll be well done before 5.30 or you'll be looking at the clock forever. Um, higher. Like that. Say something worthwhile. Um, let me... Uh, uh, let me take off from Tony's introduction, just uh, generally talk about the, the book a little bit. I've been in uh, local or state government, as many of you know, for about three decades, um, trying to use data in various ways. And there's obviously lots of discussion about the use of data. Bob Baines here, who's the world's expert on using data to drive performance. And there's just, a, and, and he's got a book as well uh, that's been featured here at the Ash Center. So we're thinking about data in the following way. Um, and government structures uh, consistent with Tony's introduction. So, so let me think about it this way. So we have these uh, government accountability systems, the structure of government, that generally attempts to ensure accountability by managing uh, limits on the discretion of a public employee. And if you want to uh, ensure that a public employee does not abuse his or her discretion, of course, the best way to do it is to make sure they have no discretion at all, right? because then they can't abuse it. And that does accomplish the purpose of making it difficult for bad employees to be really bad, but it makes it impossible for good employees to be really good. So that's the first point that indirectly we uh, address in the book. The second, uh, Tony also referenced, which is that, and I spend my time in, in, in city government primarily, but and, and Bill is a a refugee of city government and an employee of state government, so he'll have his own perspectives. But, you know, we organize um, government vertically, and people live horizontally, right? They don't, they, you know, we operate street departments and parks departments and fire departments, but, you know, people live in a community. And the big uh, discoveries of solutions are often horizontal, yet the systems we use, the data systems we use, the the, the task-based systems we use are almost always vertical. So uh, how does one then use uh, data, if you will, to manage the discoveries uh, across, the, um, across the vertical? So we, we look in the book at how the use of data, uh, both uh, data mined in social media, to, uh, about which Susan will discuss, and the data that we might talk about in terms of, uh, of data analytics and big data in the enterprise itself can come together to drive value. And I would suggest that um, what they do is, coupled with uh, technology revolutions, really of the last 36 months even, in terms of data mining tools. I mean, everyone here who's worked in a government, whether it's a U.S. government or not, I'm sure has run into somebody who says, I'm the 
I'm the CIO of my agency and my data system is a legacy system and it can't communicate with anybody else's. So I'm the protector of my information, right? But, but today's tools make all that sort of thinking obsolete. So, so we're looking at uh, the ubiquity of mobile tools. Every public worker has one. Uh, the sophistication of data mining tools that allow us to pull out structured and unstructured data from everything from an agency's data to uh, uh, a, a YouTube posting. Uh, we're looking at the cloud as driving down the cost of, uh, of adoption for many of the most sophisticated tools that are there. And, and, and we have this, this range of data tools and we have this archaic government system. So how can we allow employees to have more discretion and yet have more accountability through the same data tools? How can we make these discoveries across the agencies? And so uh, that's the uh, setup for what we think is a, a way to empower public employees to solve problems and also to allow us to actually produce more uh, uh, results per dollar of input, right? So that instead of, you know, the de uh, Bob, again, is more of an expert in this than I am, but my view of the, of the definition of a high-performance government in a lot of cases is running faster in place. Right, measuring more activities that you're doing that are producing not necessarily a result. So, so we're trying to look at data to identify outliers, look at data to predict problems, uh, and look at uh, uh, the way we handle data to increase discretion and accountability so they're not necessarily trade-offs. Now, just a, a, one brief example, and then Susan will talk about the role of kind of the, the engaged citizen in all this, uh, and then um, Bill will talk about, this is really cool. Bill does this stuff, we write about it, and so, we get to pretend like we really know what he did, but he's in the room, so it's, it's a little bit inhibiting. Um, so, um, and the part about you being a good-looking uh, Tip O'Neill, that was from Susan wrote that part, just in case you're curious. Uh, so let's think about this uh, data avalanche real quickly, and then, and then I'll close. So, so we write in the book about um, the uh, CIO and the head of children's services in the state of Indiana. And uh, you can go back five years ago, and still probably the case in Massachusetts, but five years ago in Indiana, where you can uh, imagine the stereotypical young, harassed caseworker with her clipboard and files sitting down in the living room of a stressed family trying to conduct an interview and sort through writing down her results and, and looking at data and being somewhat flustered and overwhelmed at the, at the time and inhibited in her lack of information, right? It's, it's still today in New York City uh, you know, where, when I was deputy mayor, I used to visit the agencies, and many of the agencies that were, in, for example, in the child welfare area didn't even know whether the child from the data system had been in school that day, right? There was just an inability to kind of look at that data, which would be pretty simple data. So, so now you, you find that information transferred in a tablet form to the worker. But, but then you say to Tony's note, well, just transferring massive amounts of information from paper to digits and putting it in front of the worker is not necessarily the best way to accomplish a goal. So then the, the next issue becomes how do we in, in, incorporate decision support systems in the tools that he or she uses so that the caseworker can have a better prediction that, well, you've got a broken left arms, two of your siblings had broken left arms last month, you ought to ask the following set of questions, right? So, so it doesn't, it shouldn't take the place of discretion, we, we don't believe, but it should inform discretion. And then if you take that uh, model farther out, and Indiana's not gone this far, but they're trying to, then you say, 
Well, there's some issues with respect to the family. There's some issues with respect to the caseworker. We can now look at the data to figure out how that caseworker makes decisions in certain situations. Is she influenced by the ethnicity of the family? Is she influenced by the way she enters information? Can we actually look at the sentiment analysis in her reports to say that she's written the same story about every kid she's seen in the last two months, right? So we know that, that her insights are more rote than they are real, right? And then you say, well, maybe the caseworker is good and maybe we know a lot about the family, but the, perhaps it's the provider of services to the family that's that's sufficient or insufficient so now we can measure the results by provider and then you go well that's just a lot of information and so the the point of what we're trying to do is say that you can look at outliers in terms of the family you can look at outliers in terms of the caseworker you can look at outliers in terms of the provider and now we have more of an accountability system that's systemic in the world in which the the child that may be a foster child is embedded so uh, my uh, uh, set up for Susan and a uh, comment to Tony is it's easy to get uh, overwhelmed with the amount of data but the responsibility of uh, uh, of the structures of government is to deliver that data in a way that provides better information and then finally the following so one of the things we we think about is that the definition of a professional in government is somebody who's become technically really well versed in their vertical and so now we give them big data, and now they're sure that they know what's in everybody else's best interest, right? So they, be, they can become uh, confident in their tone deafness about listening to the community. So now we have to engage the information from the citizen in a way that informs this process and leads to better results, and Susan will provide you that answer. I'll take that, yeah. Well, you can see why Steve Goldsmith was such a terrific mayor and deputy mayor, and it was so much fun to work on a book with him. So I'm delighted to be at the Ash Center because uh, to Tony, the university definitely has a role, and the role is to act as a platform, to convene people, to bring in community members, the people who are here today, to work on big, thorny questions collaboratively. Can you hear me now? Okay, big, thorny questions collaboratively. Because the job of the Ash Center is to make democracy better. That's the charge of this center. And the book is aimed at pointing towards a whole shift in paradigm that we think is going to make democracy better. Because cities are facing enormous challenges. At the same time, they're being asked to do much more with less. Their resources are scarce. Three-quarters of the world's citizens are going to be living in cities by 2050, so we have to get this right. They also are being charged with making democracy more attractive because we often look at authoritarian nations and say, well, they're doing that. They can just declare that high-speed rail is built. America's sinking in terms of economic growth. We get all despairing and sort of millennial about this. And a big hope for the future, the long-term attractiveness of democracy is that government works better, the civic fabric holds together, coheres, and we understand government doing its work. Government can actually show its work in a way that increases agency and autonomy of citizens. And the, the terrific thing about digital technology is that it makes all of this possible. Here's a story from Citizens Connect, the wonderful mobile app featured in um, chapter one of the Responsive City, which you're all gonna read so as not to disappoint us. Um, 
we were told that people using Citizens Connect to contact the city to talk about a pothole felt as if they were helping, not complaining. That they were engaged with the city, right? And the long-term visibility of the city, even helping the city know what it knows, is empowered by fiber at the bottom, sensors all over the city, algorithms, chewing through data, open data platforms, screens everywhere, an entire electronic layer of life, letting people know what the city is up to. Because when we see more touch points with the city, when we have some sense of the role of government in our lives, we can do lots of small things well, which give the city the chance to do the big things we're gonna have to do to survive. Crumbling infrastructure, terrible problems, again, with uh, inequality, social cohesion. So, big picture here, this is, this is the future of democracy, and we have to show the long-term gains of this process so that we don't feel despair. And I'll tell you, this book is not despairing. This, it's full of, it's sort of a people magazine of the heroes across America and the world who are working on these problems quite successfully. And Bill Oates, it's so exciting to have him here. He's, he's such a leader. And he has the kind of gallows humor and you know, unending energy that makes, makes it possible to get things done almost against impossible odds. It's so hard to get things done inside government. So we're trying to provide a roadmap for people inside using these stories and, and really work on these big themes of collaboration, creativity, innovation, all the things that America's good at, using this stacked series of technologies, fiber, data, data analytics, everything else. So my, my contribution here is to say that we're thrilled that city government seems to be at a tipping point. There's a whole new generation. Our students are going into government. We're trying to get them in there and make sure they go there. And uh, they won't be satisfied with systems that don't respond to collaboration. They won't be satisfied with rules that make it impossible to procure new technology, with civil service rules that make it impossible for people to act like professionals. And they'll expect the same kind of interactive, engaged experience they have with Yelp and Facebook and every other platform. They want that with their government. And if we can provide that, if we can provide that, we can have sustainable cities that are a pleasure to live in. So that's the big, big theme here. And I'm delighted to bring up, if he wants to stand up, uh, Bill Oates, who you must read about. Because every time people walk into a room with Bill, they smile. There you go. Uh, so. Uh, so I'm Bill Oates, and for uh, the last uh, seven and a half years, I was the chief information officer at the city of Boston. Uh, I left uh, the city when the mayor left uh, back in January, and have been working for Governor Patrick for the last eight months, uh, doing the, trying to do some of the similar things that we did at the city at the Commonwealth level. But let me just comment on a couple of the things that Steve and Susan said. And first of all, uh, this is the first time uh, when I read the book, uh, that what we did uh, was featured so extensively in a, in a book like this. Uh, and, and for practitioners uh, who 
kind of just do this stuff and probably aren't very good at documenting the what and the why that we do. It was great to actually recap where we started and how we got to where we got to in Boston because it really was a story of, of people and of leadership and of really trying to change kind of uh, the paradigm that existed in local government. But let me just touch on a couple things because I, I know we'd like to get into the question and answers. Uh, first of all, I was really lucky, right? So I worked in the private sector for all of my career, 20 plus years, and landed uh, in the city of Boston uh, at the end of 2006. And the role I was filling was the chief information officer role in the city of Boston. And it was the first time that that position worked directly for the mayor of the city. So it was a cabinet level position. And as I look back on it, I really wonder sometimes how any of my predecessors in similar roles in the city were ever able to affect change when it was so critical for me to develop the relationship that I did with Mayor Menino. And, and Steve said a couple times about the horizontal nature of kind of the sharing and, and, and the opportunities that we have. And one of the nice things for me is I was given a job with horizontal responsibility, right? You know, as the chief information officer of the city, charged with, you know, using technology in a different way to move the city forward, I had that ability to look across all of the agencies, and that was critical for us to start thinking about how do we break down some of these barriers that exist around departments and agencies. So that was key. But probably the most important thing for us is the fact that we worked for Tom Menino, right? And, and Tom Menino, uh, by the time I got there, had already been the mayor of Boston for 13 years and had developed his style. And what we learned very quickly from the mayor, and you've probably heard these stories, and some of them are, are reflected in, in the book, uh, is that Mayor Menino was, uh, was, was very well known for the fact that he had met personally so many of the people in the city of Boston. And at one point, it was over 50% of the people in Boston in a survey said that they had actually met the mayor. And this is a city of 630,000 people. So think of citizen engagement. You know, that's, that's the profile for citizen engagement, somebody that's out there uh, talking to all these people. And what we felt is that Mayor Menino, because of that connection he had across the city with his constituency, you know, he was building trust with all the folks in the city of Boston one interaction at a time. And so his ability to do that and to develop that level of trust, when it came to the point that Susan made earlier about making big, tough decisions, the city trusted him. The city trusted him because it was built on that foundation of those interactions. And we very consciously in the IT organization started thinking about, boy, wouldn't that be an interesting model to use as we think about these new tools that we have of doing the same thing, right? Of building the ability to have trustful interaction with our citizens, right? To do it in different ways, in innovative ways, but to have this interaction help develop that same level of trust in government that the mayor had, had done individually by just meeting everybody. And so we were really fortunate at that time. And I, and, I, and I look back at 2007 and 2008 when we were really getting started that we really didn't know what this roadmap was going to look like. We had no idea where it was going to lead. But we knew, per the mayor, we needed to focus on people. We need to reflect the diversity of the neighborhoods of the city of Boston. And our focus really needed to be out there. And so, so that was kind of a guidepost for us. And he threw a project at us. And that project was what we called CRM, Constituent Relationship Management. But what it really was, 
was building a foundation for citizen services. And to take the great intentions that the city always had of being very responsive to any citizen inquiry, but to do it in a different way, to build technology and put data where it needed to be, to really be able to glue together. The mayor used to say to me, why are we doing all this? Everybody tells me we do a great job in constituent services. And I said, mayor, a lot of people tell you the good job that's done when the right call comes in and it goes to the right person and it gets handed off to the right department, but we don't have any rigor around the data on how well are we doing it and how consistently are we doing it, and that's what we're going to work on. We're going to make sure that when we do our performance management, our Boston about results, that the data is real, that it's not people making stuff up. We want to make sure that we have integrity across the board here. So we were charted, uh, charting down this course of CRM, of building a platform to connect public works and transportation and the parks department and the folks that were taking the calls and all those different departments. And what it allowed us to do was kind of get off on the foot of innovation uh, by doing a lot of different things, right? In one way, it led us down the path towards open data uh, performance management because we, when we in implemented the new CRM system so that there was real data there, we made some decisions. Well, we were going to publish that information every night to the public. So every night, the public was going to be able to see how many calls come in, what type of calls would come in. And this was a real challenge for people like the Public Works Department who weren't used to having this stuff publicly portrayed. That started us down a much longer term path of what we could do with data across the entire city. Uh, we broke down these silos between these departments and it gave us the kind of first shot at taking departments, allowing them to work, work cross agency and really find the innovators that existed in every one of the departments around the city. Susan mentioned Citizens Connect. Once we built the CRM platform, we started thinking about is there a better way with modern technology to engage with our citizens? And we sat, small group of people, whiteboarding what an app would look like that a constituent might want to use. And how do we give this to the constituents or to groups of constituents to come back and tell us, does this look like something they would use? We developed it, we implemented it, and it led to what Susan talked about, that people actually telling us why were they using the app now and they never called before? Because when they called, they felt like they were complaining and now they were using the app and they were helping. And so we started to develop this community of engaged citizens who were really helping us do the job of city government. And it also, because when we built those platforms, we started leveraging social media. So you could open up a ticket through social media. And that led us down the path of using social media to truly engage with the constituency of the 21st century. And we built capacity. We, we hired people to be social media strategists, et cetera. And then that worked great as the city was running day to day. And it really helped out when we would run into big issues in the city. So when we would have a storm or the Boston Marathon, our ability to engage with our constituents because we had developed capacity in social media gave the city a whole different relationship. So if you think about it, the engagement story really uh, developed early on as the mayor kind of pushed us in a direction of focusing on people and focusing on a how to connect with those people allowed us to try lots of different things and to develop pathways in each of those areas that really changed Boston from, you know, it was always a well-run city. The mayor always had a good handle on, on all the things he was doing. But to be able to do all those things, his high-touch approach that he always had, but to now support it with high-tech. And I think we were really able over a period of time to do that and engage with a lot of the other folks that are mentioned in, this, in, in, in the book. 
Chicago, New York, uh, a lot of the folks that are in there, they were our peers, right? We were talking, we developed that collaboration because we also felt that none of us had to solve these problems by ourselves, that we had this opportunity to collaborate together, create critical mass, and really start influencing what we were there for, which was to transform government into something that it needed to be today. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, the floor is open. Feedback uh, issue. Yeah, maybe it's this as well. Well, as uh, as Susan said, it's an optimistic book, and it's also a fascinating read. So I do encourage. Uh, people to look at it. Um, one thing that comes over to me, though, or a couple of things, I guess, come over to me is uh, I agree entirely with what has been said about this necessity to create the horizontal linkages, and we're too much working in the vertical silos. But one other thing that comes over to me is the role of individuals and leadership in this. And so I suppose a question that arises from that is, how much is this dependent on an individual getting it in a key position to push it through? And then that has two other sets of consequences, it seems to me. The first is, you know, are, and I'd, I'd be interested also to hear all three of your reflections on this, but how it really worked, Bill, where you had a stable of people who worked 20 years, 30 years in a different system, and now you're telling them you're turning upside down really the culture of the way they're going to work. And, you know, is that really feasible uh, across a whole range of government services? And then a third issue that then comes up in my mind related to this is what does this mean for training for a place like the Kennedy School or a young generation? What is it that we now think we want our students to know if they're going to go into government service? Now, I know they all use Uber and Yelp and, you know, that's, that's the way kids are, all the things I don't understand. So they obviously have an affinity to thinking about technology, but they don't have the experience of how you think about technology within a grounded system of operations and support. So this must have very significant consequences, I would think, for, for what we're trying to teach. Uh, I don't know if you want to make some initial comments or open up. Or well, you asked like 27 <laughs> questions. Um, well, let me provide a general framework and we can be more specific as we go kind of from my left. Um, so there's a couple chapters in the book about leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, when I, and one way to think about this is when I tried to do this in New York City, that was like three years ago, there was pretty substantial resistance from the operating agencies and from OMB about funding more technology. And um, uh, there were a couple data scientists that we write about in the book, one named Mike Flowers, who sat in the corner of City Hall. And, and many of you have read this story, but you know we had a fire, family died in a fire, the building had been illegally converted uh, meaning too many families lived in an insufficient dwelling. I knew that the um, 
that the post and the news were going to call. So I called the fire department and said, you know, how many complaints have you had on the building? And, you know, they said 50,000. I called the buildings. I mean, how many complaints have you had? Have you any complaints on the building? They said, yes, but we have 50,000 complaints a year. So, you know, we got to it and we didn't get back. And the buildings department said the same thing. And then, you know, we tried everybody kind of, you know, gnash their teeth. And then Flowers is in the back of the room, right? And I think he graduated from NSA or CIA or something, you know. And so he just starts grabbing data sets, right? Now, we had not been able to set up a data analytics center as intentionally as Bill did or Mayor Emanuel did in Chicago, which is the point of this story. But so a, a small group of really talented people said, well, we'll get uh, mortgage foreclosures, tax delinquencies, uh, 911 runs, 311 runs, and two other easily accessible data sets. And we're going to tell you which buildings are going to burn down of your 50,000 reports. And they, you know, they increased the predictability by 1,000 times. And we had little teams go out and solve those problems. So that's a story based on people. And if, those, if the Flowers team had not been there, that project never would have been done. As contrasted to trying to set it up more structurally as Chicago and Boston has done. So I, I, I and uh, the resistance, it seems to me, uh, Bill and Susan, is a resistance from people who have an established way of doing things uh, and or from lawyers uh, or others who are protectors of the existing bureaucracy, right? So I, I just kind of, I'm, I'm trying to set up Bill because his, we have picked him as an unusual um, national leader with a good uh, uh, coincidence that he had a committed mayor who would, who would back him up. So uh, that's my introduction. Said, hello. Uh, so when we started in in Boston, I, I do think the question about individuals. Again, when we were back in uh, uh, you know 2007, 2008, we were really fortunate that, in addition to having the mayor's leadership, we had some really smart people show up in the organization, right? And and I think. Uh, when I think back on the beginnings of uh, Citizens Connect and what we did with our, uh, our CRM system and, and the engagement opportunities that we had there, uh, it was really a small number of folks that decided to kind of push the envelope a little. And I think that today it's a different story, right? Today I don't think it's quite as necessary to have the individual, you know, who can help. So in Boston, if we take that story, you know, not only did we, you know, launch a really great project with CRM, launch an application like Citizens Connect that grew into employee mobile apps, that grew into Street Bump, which helped us detect road obstacles. We developed a pipeline of really interesting, innovative uh, projects and then wrapped it around the Office of New Urban Mechanics, which became our model for, you know, opening the door to City Hall to employees, to entrepreneurs, to uh, academia, to whoever, to come in and respond to interesting ideas that could move us forward. So that led to that creation of the Office of New Urban Mechanics, which also spread to other cities. We have a, an office down in Philadelphia that also uses the same name. And again, that all comes back to Mayor Menino and his original you know, uh, urban mechanic uh, moniker that he had back in 1993. I think today, given the success that a lot of the folks uh, that are listed in the in, that are written about in the book have had, it's much easier. I was down in uh, in, in Nashville uh, last week at a conference of state CIOs, leading a panel conversation about how do you develop innovation teams across state government, 
and again, there are a lot of models to follow now, and I think the opportunity is there, and, and pressure is there on all these organizations to be able to develop the capacity to be able to think differently and to transform your organizations for efficiency, for better engagement, for all the things that we talk about. So I think that that personality part of it was important. I still think it's important to have ownership. Uh, the one other comment I, I wanted to make uh, is that, you know, when, you, when you're in a role like Mayan, uh, it isn't all about apps, right? It is about uh, taking all that interesting stuff that you can do. I used to think about it when I was at the city, is that I had a lot to do on core technology infrastructure in the city of Boston. I needed to build a fiber network. I needed to build information systems platforms and storage and data centers that actually run. Right? Remember, this was kind of pre-cloud, most of it. Uh, but when we were doing those things, nobody cared, right? Nobody, nobody was that interested in funding those things that we needed to do. The CFO battle that I would have on an annual basis would be pretty challenging. So when we were doing all the innovative, kind of interesting things, what it did is it, it bought us credibility, it bought us time, it bought us a lot of things that helped us do the blocking and tackling that we needed to do at the same time. So again, it's great to do all the interesting things and I think they keep getting bigger and as we develop critical mass, they have more and more impact over time. But for us, it was also to just kind of help move us forward as an organization because if you want to do great things with data, if you want to really be good at data management across your organization, you've got to develop skills and platforms around those things. I personally, as I look at it now at the state level, is the biggest challenge we have across state organizations to do, is to do exactly that, is to become data smart. And that's a challenge, right? Because as Steve said, there are plenty of lawyers around who don't want to let their agency data go to the next guy. There are plenty of uh, cycles spent on developing uh, MOUs between agencies and inter-agency uh, agreements and things like that. And all those things have a chilling effect or at least slow down your ability to move forward and get the value you would get, the value that a Mike Flowers gets from grabbing different data sets and pulling them together. What we're all trying to do is institutionalize that, right, to effectively break down those barriers, respecting, you know, privacy rights and confidentiality issues and all the things that exist there, but to be able to move forward. And I, and I think it's important for us to know that a lot of that stuff isn't just going to get solved by a new mobile app or it's, it's going to be solved by doing these things with rigor and, and with integrity. So just to tie everything up with a neat little bow, when uh, Bill came into City Hall, he heard the sound of typewriters, right? Just let that sink in. This is 2006. And so there were upfront investments needed in infrastructure to make this multi-layered vision come true. Similarly, there are upfront investments needed in training in, uh, the, in the university to make sure that we've got the people with the right skills to go into local government and we've addicted them to the sense of public service. And we've opened doors that don't make them work there for 20 years if they don't want to. Maybe two year stints, just go in and serve and then come back out and have that be part of your career. So uh, the Kennedy School has a very important role potentially to play, which is to serve as a platform for this kind of training, to make sure that there's a constant flow between local government, state government people who will uh, understand what the problems are, get fellowships associated with solving real problems inside cities, get experiential training on what it means to be a, a data scientist, maybe 
take a one-year baccalaureate in data science, more and more schools are looking at this, and have the basic literacy that will allow them to be cross-trained as policy actors, you know, wise about economics, we love economics, but also uh, literate in technology. This is all about literacy. You don't have to be a coder necessarily yourself, but you have to understand what the capabilities are of te technology. So big pitch for the Kennedy School's involvement in this kind of training, which so far no policy school is doing very well at. So Kennedy School could lead in this. Great, thanks. Uh, floor is open. Um, please uh, let us know who you are when you ask a question. There's a gentleman at the back there. Do you want one of the mics? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Nicolas. I'm a, a mid-career student at the Kennedy School. And I have a question regarding how effective this data-driven in, uh, data uh, innovations can be uh, uh, to, to cities and how you feel city alliances can help move one innovation process, successful innovation process, from a setting to another one. And if you could name one of the uh, numerous city alliances or city associations, I think of city protocol, but there are others that you've been working with or that you think could be uh, powerful in um, enhancing the reach of such uh, innovative projects. Um. This is all a little immature so far. So the, there are a lot of, 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 of folks and organizations touching the area. Um, and, and Bill may have a, actually a better answer to this than I am. I do. But I, I think what we need to do is kind of unbundle the elements, the blocks that build the solution. Right? So some of it is local leadership and mining your own data. Another set is what are the big what-if questions that need to be asked that unlock value, right? So, because one of the problems here is a problem of imagination. It's not a problem of technology, right? Because, you know, you're, uh, I have to keep going back to stories, but I'm, you know, a politician after all. So, so, so um, I had a group of Columbia um, capstone students, Columbia University capstone students, and we gave them all the 311 data and said, we're going to pick a problem, help us solve it. And the problem was uh, streets that flooded or iced over when there was too much rain. There's a point to this story. And um, I said, just figure out an answer, right? So, so they spent uh, much of the semester, and they got uh, uh, tree foliage data, rain data, maintenance schedule data, the type of grates that were in the streets, the the, the work task orders of the maintenance groups, the 311 complaints, and then they said, you know, here are the, the areas of the street that when you get more than, I don't know what, three quarters of an inch of rain will overflow, and here's what you need to do in, ch in terms of uh, uh, changing this drain top for this type of tree, et cetera, right? And they just came up with answers, and we just went out and solved them. So my, my point is that the, the what-if questions, so you can imagine a performance system that before they asked that question said the definition of performance is how quickly we resolve the overflow once it occurs. But the predictive world is one that's a, so, so one way to, to answer your question is we need to have um, better um, uh, consortia of supporting the what-if questions, which is what we, would, what we hope we'll be able to do. Another is the, the solutions that uh, Bill can address better than I can about cloud technology and, you know, and um, 
the, the common apps from Code for America and the open source solutions that are being developed. But, but in the end, then, we still have what I think is the biggest problem, which is insufficient talent available to most cities and states. And um, that, that barrier will have to be solved through some sort of, I think, probably loaned executive or other problem. So just to add to that, uh, my own experience when I was uh, in Boston, uh, we had great success of connecting various cities around similar problems. Uh, we created a, a small group of large cities uh, when I was, in, you know, so it was New York and Chicago and LA and Seattle and uh, uh, DC and Philadelphia. And, and you know, that group helped develop Open 311 standards, right? So that as we were starting to develop mobile apps and starting to leverage data out of 311 systems, we had some commonality to that. We pushed data out onto cities.data.gov to try to, again, advance uh, someone's ability to not only look at one city's data, but to look at, at more data sets uh, if they were available in, in a single place. Uh, I was always frustrated that we didn't take it to the next level, right? I think City Protocol is a good example of organizations that are trying to do that. God knows there's more smart cities and connected cities initiatives going on, you know, in the private sector. Uh, I always felt as though those things were great, uh, had great intentions, uh, but didn't necessarily see them being deployed for real value. Code for America a little bit differently. We were, we probably had the first big class of Code for America fellows in Boston. Patricia, what year was it? So, uh, so three years ago, had a great crew of, of Code for America folks. Uh, now they're up to 120 plus uh, cities that have had Code for America fellow teams come to them. I think there's been great uh, uh, efforts there to share and collaborate around solutions. So I think there is, is traction in that area. Uh, but I think there needs to be more, right? There need, you know, to Steve's point, you know, all of the technology benefits from uh, critical mass. Uh, if you look at the opportunities of cloud computing, if you look at how we, you know, in, in Massachusetts now, one of the things that I've done since I came to the Commonwealth is create a municipal services team for exactly the reason that Steve just mentioned. You know, there are 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts. And other than, you know, Boston and, and some of the other larger uh, communities, we really don't have a county for, form of government that pulls them all together. So you're out there in, in all of these cities and towns, and they have limited IT resource, either personnel uh, or, or funding. So what we're going to do is we're developing a portfolio of services to go out. So it's connecting with broadband, with the uh, opportunities in Western Mass that we ha now with, have with the Mass Broadband Institute. Uh, it's getting out there with applications that can help support performance management, right? Because a lot of these cities and towns want to do performance management. They don't have systems. They don't have data, you know? And so so trying to help them move along is really important for us. So, uh, and again, building some critical mass, uh, you know, uh, providing cloud-based solutions, whether it's in education or public safety or licensing and permitting, whatever it might be, to really try to drive that and not leave every one of these communities kind of on their own to figure out what they need to do. So I think there is traction, uh, but I think we still have a long way to go to create the kind of collaboration that really will allow us to have big impact and to move this faster than we've been able to move it so far.
And just to briefly add to that, so Bill, in a sense, uh, it was seconded. He came from Starwood, where he'd been leading their IT operations with great success, and goes into local government never having served before. His presence there makes a huge difference, and the, the talent gap uh, could be closed by making it easier for people to exit their business, go to local government, and then come back out swiftly. Right now, that's extremely difficult to do because as computation and storage and connectivity all become cheap and ubiquitous, the opportunities are there and the people who know about that are all in private industry. And so let them come in and then exit again. Right now, it's too hard. So fix that, everybody, and that will really help. Hi, my name is Carolyn. Um, I'm a Harvard MC MPA, but former director of science, information, economy and innovation for the government of South Australia. We're working with Professor Crawford at the moment. Um, this is a, uh, probably best directed to Bill. Um, one of the, the great difficulties is uh, not to do with technology. It's probably got something to do with imagination, but it's got a lot to do with the vertical siloed nature of, of governments and budget protection, that getting um, cross-silo initiatives um, off the ground is often extremely difficult. And obviously, with Mayor Menino, you had a very, very strong leader who was able to um, basically um, broker uh, you know, th those sort of things. It's been one of the biggest problems I've encountered in my time trying to get innovation in, into government. Can you offer any other solutions um, other than, you know, obviously having a, a fantastic leader? Well, well I always uh, tell folks that I think I was particularly fortunate to be in Boston because not only it, it was just the right place to be, right? It was it was the right leadership, meaning the mayor, not only by charter is a very strong mayor in the city of Boston, but by political capital had a, an enormous amount of, so you add that together and he was as as empowered as any CEO in the private sector. Uh, Boston was also not that big, right? I didn't have to deal with the same challenges that my peers in New York uh, and in Chicago and LA had. I mean, us being able to reel in the fire and police departments was a very different challenge than what they were faced with in, in New York City. And even geographically, I mean, we're 47 square miles as opposed to other much larger organizations. And, and we had the great ecosystem in, in Boston too, in academia and other partners to help us get there. So I always felt as though, and I, and I used to use that, you know, back in the early days to say to private partners or wherever, if you're gonna make it happen, if you wanna demonstrate how it's gonna work, this is the place that it can actually work. And I think that we pushed and pushed and pushed and ultimately were able to do that. I do think it's more challenging. I see more challenges right now in my current role, right? The, the agencies are bigger. The silos are, are more firmly built, right? And so as we think about innovation, uh, one of the things that we're doing is we're, we're landing innovation teams into these organizations, right? We're, we're seeding uh, each of those silos with innovation teams that are connected back to our organization so that we can go in there with a process and an approach and a reporting relationship. So we're going to go find the opportunities down there. Uh, you know, we've been, I've been fortunate since I got to the Commonwealth because the authority and responsibility of my own organization has increased. 
partially for reasons that you know we've had some challenging IT projects in the Commonwealth, and the and the reaction to that is how do we fix that? Well, we fix it by by having IT play more of that forward-thinking, proactive role, and not let individual agencies run big projects because they're just not that good at it because they don't do it often enough. So every one of those things is a lever to help get involved and to help create the enterprise view uh, because that's what you need. To take advantage of all of these tools that we have, not to say this needs to be total centralization of services, but you need to have an enterprise view and whether that's a commonwealth or you know, uh, uh, what, whatever it might, you know, if it's a state or a large city or a county, whatever it might be, you, you, can't, you can't waste the resources, waste the taxpayer dollars by doing these things in separate silos. So, and, and then convincing the right people. And this took some convincing with the mayor, right? I mean, the mayor was not a technology guy. I mean, the conversation with him early on, you know, always turned into the same thing where he would point out the window and say, I under, well, I kind of understand what you just told me, but what does it do for me out there? And ultimately, he started seeing that benefit, right? He started seeing the benefit that services were being delivered more effectively, that the performance management numbers were getting better and better and better, and that in his usual way, when he was out to dinner every night in a different place around the city, somebody would come back to him and say, Mayor, you know, that app is cool, but the real cool thing is the trash got picked up, you know, when I reported it, right? You know, and, and it, wa it wouldn't have happened had it only been the app without the support from the delivery agencies. And that built, you know, the, uh, the confidence of him. And then he got to the point where he would say to me or to the urban mechanics, anybody gets in your way, just let me know, because he had such confidence that we were moving things in the right direction. Yeah, um, Carmen Siriani. I'm a fellow here at Ash and a professor of sociology at Brandeis University. So I, I read uh, a good chunk of the book this morning, and I really did enjoy it. Hi, Susan. We were on a panel together. Um, <clears throat> my question is, so many cities, maybe all cities, will be so stressed by adapt adaptation challenges to climate change. And there are going to be a lot of decisions that are if not zero sum, they're really going to, some people are going to pay higher costs than others, and they're going to be very hard decisions among different neighborhoods, different business group, different homeowners, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, sometimes I wor worry in the book that um, the innovation is coming so much from the, the techie people, and this all great, I mean, I'm really convinced of what you, you do, and not enough of perhaps thinking about what is the civic capacity of community groups, environmental justice groups, neighborhood planning groups, all of the sort of hands-on civic groups that a lot of cities have in various forms, Steve's written about in his previous work, um, that we need to think a lot more about that, not first, but simultaneously with, okay, so now what tools do they need? Um, because sometimes it looks like we're almost skirting around the edges of what the groups that would be empowered players in this community arena might need to be done. Uh, you should watch, this is a data point, the more complicated the question, the faster Susan is to pass the microphone. Um, well, there, uh, there's no doubt, right, that um, an app to report a pothole is easier than solving climate change. And, there, and, and for those of us kind of as public officials in the instant gratification, at least we can 
accomplished, the pothole being fixed. That's one way to respond that's not very satisfactory. Another way is um, uh, this is not climate change, but it, but it goes to your point. So uh, New York City had a $7 billion EPA mandate to stop their combined sewer overflows and solve that problem. And, um, you know, after a lot of huffing and puffing, we eventually got EPA to agree that we could maybe spend a billion dollars less if we found ways to trap the water before it went into the sewer. So the engineers in a, in a very professional department had figured out which uh, neighborhoods they're going to tell to do which things to, right? You need a swale here, you need a pond here, you need tree uh, boxes here. And so um, we asked, maybe it would be a better if we identified the areas of the city that were wet and then engaged the communities in maybe what the best set of solutions would be. And I think the point of, of, of trying to use that story to answer your question is that um, it's the iteration of a, of, of a solution, particularly the larger the problem, the more it needs to iterate. And we, we, do, have a, we do have a risk here that um, our definition of, of these tools is not to, and Bill's so articulate about this, but we want to be careful. We're not trying to advocate tools that merely allow you to complain to your government more effectively. That's really not the definition of an informed citizen, right? So, so how does one socialize the problem? And the answer is a new set of public administration talents, I actually think, because you know, the, the, it, up till the point of social media and engaged conversation, what you would, one would do, and I've been guilty of this, I would figure out what the right answer is, then go to an obligatory community meeting and let people shout at me for four hours and then go back and do what I was going to do anyway, right? So I could say I actually engaged the public, right? So I, so, I, so I think all that, I think you could imagine a process where government is framing the big problems, framing uh, uh, a series of options of solutions, engaging the community and socializing the solutions, and then using that to prioritize the expenditures. It still does not solve the problem, of course, of a, a, really, uh, a, a really big problem with a low percentage of actually occurring tends not to drive the best allocation of proceeds, right? If, 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 the, if the chance of catastrophe is very low and the expense is very high and the expense has to come from filling the potholes, my answer doesn't solve that problem, but at least it's a way to address the question. Sorry to make that so long. It's a pretty sophisticated question. Would you ask your question to Susan, please? <laughs> Uh, my name's Caitlin. I'm a joint degree student at the Kennedy School and Business School, and my past life was working on social impact bonds and other types of performance-based financing. Um, and one of the points you mentioned earlier about getting people comfortable uh, making public their data, like on a day-by-day -day basis, really resonated with me um, in that some of the challenges we face is that people are uncomfortable with making that public because it's entirely possible you're going to have terrible results. So I'd love to hear some strategies that any three of you came across for supporting your people um, in making them comfortable making that data public? Well, I think uh, you're right. It's a, ch it's a challenge, right? And uh, I, think, I, I think in the city, uh, early on, we just kind of bulldozed it through, right? And very quickly, uh, the departments that were afraid of it realized that this isn't such a big deal, right? And, and 
with some rigorous performance management, uh, what happened is they started getting better and better and better at what they did. So, so their numbers, you know, became uh, they were not only public but they were starting to look favorable, uh, and 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 really turned into, uh, you know, and we never. Uh, we were never laying people. We didn't have to hire a bunch of extra people because what happened in Boston is, you know, there, there was room, right? There, there was room to get better. There was room to, you know, fill potholes faster. There was room to pick up the trash and, you know, fix the streetlights uh, faster. Uh, and, and I think what we ended up doing is using data uh, is to start getting more efficiency and more productivity out of these organizations. But I do think that this challenge of exposing my data because it might be bad uh, is really a cultural thing. And in Boston, what we ended up doing is there were organizations that didn't want to produce their data. And in, in as much as we tried to encourage and show that this has been positive for all the organizations that have contributed, there were some that didn't want to do it. And then it got to the point of almost shaming them, right? <laughs> because we would start doing dashboards, you know, and we would go to the mayor and say, Here's what the data looks like, Mayor, and he's the one who would say, how come I'm not seeing Department X? You know, well, we're trying our best, Mayor, you know, and I'm sure they're working on it, but, you know, and ultimately that would create, again, you know, some momentum and some pressure to, to get there. Uh, I think at the Commonwealth I'm finding the same kinds of things, right, because particularly I'm in areas, you know, of health and, health and human services and education and other places. And so we're trying to find ways, you know, to, again, encourage, you know, we're obviously looking at the same executive orders and legislation and all those things, but we're really working with all these departments to kind of convince them that this can be a good thing, that it's, that it's not, you know, it's, it's not being done, again, to shame, to, you know, put people in a bad place. It's being done because we think there is such opportunity to make this data available, to share it with other data sources, and to start doing a better job. Because what we do find, and, and what I certainly find at the city and I find at the Commonwealth, is you're going to find the people that are looking for the tools to do their job better, right? And that un ultimately, you know, trumps, you know, the, the fear. But it, it's, it takes a lot of effort. Yeah, I think we, we keep finding city after city that the whole open data movement turns out to be most useful to people inside the walls of City Hall because now they can do their jobs better. And that benefit, showing the Delta uh, and helping empower public employees who are passionate about their jobs to sort of come out of silos, uh, dusty windows, you know, dark, isolated, and feel that they're part of a greater project actually helps enormously in uh, breaking down barriers. So it just becomes the default. And leadership is a, a essential part of this. So the Chicago chapter, Mayor Emanuel starts off day one, everything's gonna be open, that's the way it's gonna work, and just rams that through. That has a lot to do with encouraging people to be open. Uh, so to some extent, not Boston, not Chicago, Open data is a check-the-box movement. My data is open. I don't care if it's illegible. You can't do anything with it. It's, it's there, so go at it, right? So the, the interesting thing, uh, as Susan mentioned in Chicago and Bill in Boston, is how one looks at uh, the visualization of open data so that others can take advantage of that data and add value. And what we find is the, the, the better the visualization, the more intentional the uh, usefulness of the open data, the more likely it is to produce a solution that somebody sees for the city as contrasted problem. And then finally, I think you're probably the answer because, in, because if you continue to procure 
badly. The data makes no difference, right? So, so if you're going to do social impact bonds and you and you can figure out what the result is you want to you want to purchase, then this process will allow you to evaluate more effectively whether you've got that result. So, so if if we're going to continue to buy activities, then the data is not going to be particularly helpful. Um, I'm Zheng Ke He. Uh, currently, I'm Rajavali Fellow in Ash Center. Um, thank you very much for your wonderful presentation and comment. I'm quite interested in the new concept in your book is the smart governance. Could you please to explain it further? What is smart governance? Thank you. We define smart governance. We we couldn't agree, so we don't think we. We're generally looking at uh, decisions made by public officials that are more effective, and thinking about it in the following way. Right. So, if you wish to distinguish between the restaurant that's likely to give you food poisoning and that that's not. Is just kind of mindless inspections of every restaurant the best way to go about it, right? If you're trying to predict what therapies work if, and which child is most likely to be adversely affected by his or her family or environment, do you just go through the caseload as if they're all the same? If you're in charge of the Philadelphia State of Pennsylvania Parole and Probation Department, do you treat every parolee uh, as if maybe their last crime grades? How you, what treatments you provide to them, or do you kind of triage your caseload by a set of data? So we're we're thinking about smart government as the the use of data by a public employee slash official to make more effective use of the resources that he or she has available. Now you know another way to add to this that we haven't talked about in the presentation, but it's probably worth thinking about for uh, for for this audience is that. There is a there's a lot of uh, of smart data in the Internet of Things as well, right? So we can move traffic more quickly through the connection of sensor technology. That's that's a smart government, which may or, uh, other than setting up the process and writing the algorithms doesn't need somebody every day to make decisions because they're embedding that in the way the system works, right? And so the so the so the our definition of smart government is smart public officials, but they may be smart enough to set up a system that that operates more effectively itself. It's important to note that the title of the book is actually the Responsive City, and that's for a reason that uh, technology is just a tool, and uh, the, the to just say mechanically x data therefore y decision is not what we're suggesting. The idea is is that policy, wise government, prudence, and a lot of listening and interaction with citizens is the key to this. Uh, because purely mechanistic decisions are going to end up entrenching existing problems. Uh, there has to be discretion in the professional employee and a sense of agency and autonomy in the citizen for this whole system to work. Is it the questions are tougher or that they turn off the air at five? No, <laughs> They turn off the air at 6. At Harvard Law School goes off at 6, so you should come over there. Uh, yes, hi, I'm Amy Tsung, and I am a fellow here at, Ber um, at the Berkman Center, actually at, at the Harvard Law School, and I also work for NTIA, Department of Commerce. And um, as you could probably guess, my question is around inclusion. Um, so uh, two things. One is, has there been analysis of the data in terms of 
which neighborhoods get uh, both um, use these apps and then get responded to more often because you know the fear is that maybe the wealthier the 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 less the less people feel enfranchised in you know in government the less they be participating and using this app and a related question is around um, the development of apps I mean one thing that's been a concern of people in the inclusion field is that while there's lots of good intentions about hackathons and things like that, that really what's getting built are apps to, again, a more, let's say, um, not serving the needs of more uh, marginalized communities. And um, one example of that was um, the recent New York um, competition on app competition where Sketch Factor won. And let's just say that was not very culturally sensitive. <laughs> so, uh, Well, just to answer uh, a little bit of that. First of all, I think your first question about uh, the use of these kinds of applications across the board. I, I, I think it, it one of the great uh, things that we found in Boston is becoming better at data, having better data sources, uh, having partnerships with academia allowed us to take a look at data in different ways. And when I, when I think about the opportunity that exists at both the city level, the state level, and I'm sure at the Fed, lo fed level, to be better at data management, to be better at data analytics, uh, in Boston, uh, after our first cut of looking at the CRM data, so the 311 data that was coming in, uh, so that was great for us because we could tell now, you know, how many pothole calls and how many trash calls and how many possums in barrels and things like that, all the things that, that we used to uh, see. Uh, but then it allowed us to take a deeper dive at that data to say, okay, we know what people are calling about. Let, let's find out who's calling, right? And, and really allowed uh, the city with some uh, partners on uh, the academia side uh, to look at this differently and say, where are the calls coming in from? And, and did an assessment out there and you know, actually walked the streets of Boston to look at at, at issues, right? Street lights that were out, uh, trash that was abandoned, graffiti, whatever it might be. And not surprisingly, right, we found out that, you know what, if a, if a street light in Beacon Hill is out, it gets reported pretty quickly. But that same street light might not get reported as quickly in another part of the city, which led, again, you know, this was all about kind of carving out a path, you know, not knowing where we were going to end to go down to some of these neighborhoods and to market to the neighborhoods that yes, there are services that are available to you, that yes, if you call, or yes, if you use this app, or yes, if you use the text version of this app, because we know that some folks might not have smartphones, that we would be able to encourage the entire community to start leveraging these uh, uh, these tools that we have. And, and then saw a significant uplift in how these calls were coming in from other parts of the city. Only scratching the surface. But, I, but my point being that by really getting good at data, it's going to allow you to identify those types of opportunities. And just one point on your second question. Uh, when we started with Citizens Connect, uh, other cities were doing big app competitions. 
uh, we found that we didn't have, you know, this kind of prolific uh, mobile app community that was looking to do stuff for the city. We developed uh, Citizens Connect because we felt like we had to. We were kind of, we were trying to seed the market, right? We were trying to say, here's an app that actually would be valuable for the constituents of the city and for the city itself in terms of how it delivers services. And it led us to start developing a community of developers that, that really were interested in leveraging open data and doing things that were valuable for us. Felt the same way about open data, right? For us, open data was never check off the box and make sure all the agencies were sending their data in whatever format they could get because there was an executive order. It was really focused on what data sets could add value. And, and again, for us, with, with our mayor on top of us, it was all about what were we doing for the folks, what were we doing for the neighborhoods, and, and again, with that as the guidepost, allowed us to kind of to move forward in, a, and I think, a very different direction there. Um, this is such a good question, and the answer was just as good. Uh, so so let, me, let me just uh, emphasize the following. I, I, I th w the power here, right, is to turn social media into uh, enhanced voice for those who are ignored. I mean, the idea, right, that uh, of the 20 million calls we got a year in New York City, that they were um, that they were representative broadly of the populace, and that the apps are not. I mean, right, with people who have voice and know how to uh, engage power, do it. And I, you know, I've seen this regardless of the service. So. And now that we have uh, adoption rates, you know, reaching 70% on, on smartphones and, 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 you know, backstopped by SMS, I think the challenge is, is to use the tools to grant voice to those who have been ignored by the system generally. And, you know, we've been talking to a few cities about how would you think about uh, intentionally organizing feedback loops? So you've got young adults in after-school programs. What do they think about the program? Do you, are you do workforce training? Does that workforce training actually produce anything of value? What's the, what's the person who was trained think about it? What does the employer think about the, the, the benefits of the training? So, so if we can or, organize intentionally, right, whether it's a it's an intermediary like Smart Chicago that Susan uh, profiles in the book, or whether it is a an advocacy group that is that, that stands up these tools and helps people express themselves. Then I, I think we can we we can begin to change things. And finally, as Bill hinted in his work, the fact that we can now see uh, results geocoded by which communities are getting the resources, which ones are getting the responses, ought to have a therapeutic effect itself. So there's no doubt that these uh, kind of, I've got my first iPhone, I can report my street bump to Boston has it, has it, it feels like it's a little bit too, you know, kind of like us. But um, the broader array of applications, if intentionally marketed, I think can, can equalize the voice problem a little bit. Okay, Tony, you've got a break sometime soon. It's really hot in here. Well, it's 5.30, and then we get a drink. So I have, have some more water. Okay. Hi there. My name is Mila Cheracina. I'm a fellow at the program in criminal justice, former student of uh, Professor Goldsmith's. My question is a little bit about the balance between stability and innovation. Um, in the work that I do with governments, particularly in public safety and justice, there's a real need to de demonstrate consistency, 
uh, and stability both to the community as well as to one's line staff inside government departments. And so as you're describing chief innovation officers and in innovation teams and chief information officers, I'm thinking about specific people that are endowed with the responsibility to think about information and innovation in a new way. Um, so what's the theory? Is the, is the idea to keep innovation in the hands of a few within government? Or is there a theory of change to sort of diffuse that within the organization? And what might that look like? Thanks. For me, and my co-panelists may have different responses to this, the idea is to infuse all of government with the sense of visibility, greater uh, situation awareness of their citizens, um, greater professionalism, understanding, a greater sense of their connection to community and the community's connection to them. And what digital technology makes possible is all of these things. The persistent networked screen, you can see groups, you can see issues in ways that we really couldn't before. You can give that caseworker in the field a sense of all the programs that the person is dealing with that they're trying to help. You can give a sense of autonomy and discretion to employees. Um, so I, I see government enhanced by this, amplified, and the civic engagement of government made richer and more meaningful this way. Now, if you just throw up in a comment page and then never respond to the citizen, it's actually worse than if you never opened the page in the first place. What we're talking about is a continuous emergent system of interactions that gives rise to visible tracking of what's going on in the city. How does the city feel about its well-being? You know, what's, how's that neighborhood really feeling? I know it sounds a little uh, wifty, but this is possible with um, ubiquitous uh, screens and a sense of another layer to life that goes beyond what's immediately apparent. So just a, a couple comments on my own experience with that kind of balance of stability and innovation. Uh, when we, when we first started down this path, there was always the thought that the innovators are, I don't know how many of you folks take sports analogies, are out there shooting free throws, right? You know, they're, they're out there coming up with cool ideas and, and then they'll just bring them back and somebody's gotta figure out how to build it, how to implement, how to support it, et cetera. My experience both in Boston and now at the Commonwealth has been very different than that in, in, uh, in the city. We developed a great relationship between the Office of New Urban Mechanics, and again, this all starts at a very personal level. I mean, I was really fortunate to have a couple really smart folks leading that organization that worked very closely with me as I was kind of doing all of the IT things that I felt the city needed to do to move forward. And the reason that that connection was so important is that you know, the innovators needed help, right? They needed resources, they needed tech support, they needed things that wouldn't necessarily be available to them in their kind of nimble world of trying to come up with ideas and find solutions and find partners and things like that. And I think the other effect of that was that it changed my organization, right? So as the head of the IT organization, which traditionally in a city like Boston was a very back office, 
we run payroll and we run financial systems and HR systems and things like that, but wasn't necessarily at the front lines touching the constituents and doing all those things. But what we ended up with after a number of years is an innovation team that was very cognizant and respectful of the tech issues that they were treading into with their different solutions, and an IT organization that became a bunch of innovators on their own. And I think I'm seeing the same thing at the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. When I first came to the Commonwealth, we took the Government Innovation Office and we brought it into my organization for one reason, to give it the resources and the connection that it needed to get off the ground, to have some successes, to go from the perspective of just having ideas to being actually able to deliver solutions. I think all of these things, to Susan's point, is to help develop a culture of innovating and to really change what the core of your organization looks like so that it really does spread throughout all your agencies that, you know, you're but, – but again, you know, as, a, as, as one of these folks with this horizontal responsibility, there's got to be some thought about how do we knit it all together, right? How do I make sure that what I end up with at the Commonwealth is in a bunch of apps that have been created that don't respect the fact that that user is using the Commonwealth in a lot of other different ways? So how do we start thinking about changing that whole network? So it's a, it's a journey, you know, that I think we're all on, uh, but I think kind of balancing that has to be you know, you, you don't want to have IT people that don't want to innovate because that will stifle your ability to do those things. And you can't have your, your IT leads just co completely go to the innovation path and, and sacrifice some of the integrity and the foundational things that you need. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a challenging task, but I think it gets, every year it gets better. And I hear more examples from, again, peers in states and cities that we're figuring this thing out and that the culture side of this is really starting to have an impact. Okay, I'm Xinjing from the uh, um, center and uh, China competitive um, political and the economics. Um, I, uh, last year I've been here, I um, heard some presentation about the performance state performance state. So my question is for, for Bill. So I, I want the difference or the same, the performance state or the uh, responsive city. That's, that's the same, some, some, sometimes same or sometimes difference. Yeah, so maybe you, you hear the performance state. Yeah. So, uh, so my view of that, if I, uh, is I've always felt, and when I felt in the, when I was at the city, uh, all of the things that we were doing, all of the envelopes that we were pushing, all of the innovation that we were trialing, the systems we were implementing, were moving us forward on the performance side. Every single time that we implemented a new capability, engaged with citizens in a different way, provided us with more information about how the city was engaging and responding to its citizenry. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, Boston had a, a really uh, kind of well-constructed performance management system called Boston About Results. And I, if I were to characterize the Boston About Results from 2006, seven when it was first uh, implemented to the Boston About Results of 2014, what I think we have there is, first of all, way better numbers, you know, the city has really improved its ability to deliver. 
and uh, an integrity to those numbers, right? So that that we've been able to advance technology and solutions to the point where that data that's being measured now, you know, and not only measured internally by our agency leads, but being measured by our constituency because the good news is we're showing that information, you know, to our public on a regular basis. Uh, but I, I think that the performance uh, side of this uh, benefits from all of these advances that we're making in terms of how we're innovating and how we're using data more effectively. Uh, there were some elements. I remember when I came into the city and I looked at my, my Boston about results for IT, and I remember looking at them saying, the only th this is just the information that we can gather, right? None of it is important, right? None of it is important to what we do as an organization and what we should be delivering and how we should support the agencies and the constituency. And so we moved, you know, that to something that was more effective. So I don't, I think that sometimes when people think about performance, they think only about efficiency and, and saving money and being on budget. We don't view it that way. I didn't view it that way at the city and didn't view it don't view it that way at the Commonwealth. You know, what performance really is, is taking your city or your state and becoming more responsive because that means that your performance metrics should be getting better because what are you doing? You're improving your customer satisfaction, which at the bottom, at the end of it, is really what we should be measuring. This is, is a really a good question. Um, and Bill's, as was Bill's answer, um, it really depends on how one defines responsiveness, right? Because if I'm a public official and I really don't have to listen to a lot of noise, I can more quickly accomplish something. Now, is that is that a definition of responsiveness? I mean, in one sense, you know, I can watch my data and fill my potholes more quickly. But if it actually, if a definition of responsiveness is one that engages the community and builds up their confidence in government, that is a noisy, messy, time-consuming process. And there's a, there's a transactional cost for a public official of community engagement. And if you're really, really busy, as most local and state officials are, um, uh, how to resolve that balance is complicated. And I think that one of the interesting uh, approaches your question would suggest is, and one we thought about but really didn't resolve in the book, is how one organizes minds and utilizes social media, coupling both the kind of machine grading of the sentiment plus actual use of the information to inform the decision making. So how can you gather massive amounts of information and curate that information and more effectively deliver it to public officials so that we reduce the transaction cost of acquiring the information and then incorporate that in the decision making? There's no one that's doing that really well yet because the social sentiment mining tools and curation are relatively immature and, and, and not utilized well in most places. Boston's kind of an outlier in, on the good sense and everything. But So I, I think your question's well taken, and our, uh, we're trying to use a definition, I think, of responsiveness. It's a little bit broader than just how quickly you do performance. I keep looking at Bob yeah, Bain. Do you want to? Yeah, I know. So, so would you like, could you tell us the truth about Boston about results? much about it. Hi. So um, let, me, so let me set up your, your response. So Indiana has put its, um, I, yeah, I saw it, that stuff. It, its uh, data is connected to its performance unit. 
right? It's it's data analytics. And I know how that affects kind of what you see in your in your work is up here on the wall. I think what I should, Tony, I should just say that I would be back here in a few weeks to do the same thing so that if, if the group can come back. Um, I, I think the uh, word I would use to emphasize um, what I've been writing about is the leadership commitment of the top officials to not only um, authorize you to do what you're doing, but to actually figure out what they want to fix next and then make sure that it gets fixed gets fixed by active engagement in the organization. Um, we'll give you a break, Steve. <laughs> okay, it's 5.30. <laughs> so we're at, we're at time. Um, and please, uh, well, thanks first of all to all of you uh, coming to this, but please join me in thanking uh, our panelists. <laughs>